Well, good morning, Summit Church. This is like the highlight. Good morning, Summit Church. Uh, good to see you all. Uh, this is like the highlight of my year. I love, love, love uh, being here at the Summit Church and across all the campuses. What an absolute joy and delight. Absolutely loved uh, Pastor J.D. Started to call him my good friend. But if you don't know your good friends, uh, what their initials stand for, I don't think you can call him your good friend. Have no idea what JD means. Anybody know what, what does JD stand for? Anybody know? Yeah, he's your pastor. You should know these things, right? Uh, but what a joy and delight it is to be here. Uh, I, I was at the Cove um, uh, about a week or so ago. Me and my father were out there speaking together, and we're just kind of hanging out. And at the same time, we pull out uh, J.D. Greer's latest book, totally uh, unplanned for, but both of us just commented on how deeply, deeply blessed and moved and inspired we were by that book. So I want to highly encourage it, encourage you to read it just what the gospel does, but he doesn't use the gospel as a cop-out to not get after some very uh, hard things. And so I just felt deeply inspired. And then the stories he told about what God is doing in this community, in this church, uh, again, I was phenomenally inspired. Well, uh, there's that ticker again. I got 36 minutes and 44, 43, 42 seconds for the Holy Spirit to move. Um <laughs> Every year I say this, man, like putting a clock on a chocolate preacher is cruel and unusual punishment. I feel very discriminated against right now. Anyways, all right, let's do it. Get out your devices. Uh, if you've got your devices, however you get there, uh, get, uh, let's meet in Ruth chapter 2. Ruth chapter 2, what was crazy was, I was going to preach on Psalm 127. I walk in yesterday, and literally as I'm walking in, um, one of the pastors says, hey, uh, Pastor Brian, we got uh, your presentation from your assistant on Psalm 127. Our campus pastor just preached that a couple weeks ago, so. So praise God for Dropbox and his Holy Spirit. So I just uh, wasn't planning on talking about this, but Ruth chapter 2 is where we're going to hang out today. Let me just read the whole chapter to us and lift up some thoughts and we can get on with our day. Pick me up, Ruth chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. Here's what it says. Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, underline this phrase, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth, pay attention to how she's described, the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, go, my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened, I love that phrase, she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem and he said to the reapers, the Lord be with you. And they answered, the Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his young man who was in charge of the reapers, who's that fine young PYT over there? <laughs> Love that. And the servant who was in charge, that's what the Hebrew says, and the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, she is the young, here it is again, Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came and she has continued from early morning until now except for a short rest. Then, verse 8, Boaz said to Ruth, now listen, my daughter, do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged 
the young men not to touch you? Man, I wish I had more time. Uh, We're not going to be talking about this subject specifically, but right here we see one of the things that a godly man does. He protects. He says, I've charged that these men will not touch you. One of my mentors, a guy by the name of Dennis Rainey, if you walk into his house there in Little Rock, the first thing you see in his house, no embellishment, is a bat mounted on a wall with two words carved in it, respect her, and it's got all these signatures. I said, Dennis, you got to break down. What's this bat about? He says, well, I got uh, four daughters. They're all grown now. But when they were in high school, no such thing as some strange dude pulling up to my house, taking my daughter out that I didn't know. So if you want to go out, one of my daughters, we, we had to interview you the week before. And I just gave you the laundry list of stuff that you were going to do and you weren't going to do. Like you're going to open doors, you're going to keep your lips to yourself, yada, yada, yada. If they agreed to it, they signed the bat. Now, that wouldn't work in California where I live, but uh, in Little Rock, I guess that's how they roll. But a little extreme, but see, this is what godly men do. We, we protect. We don't exploit. We don't take advantage of. I said to my church one Sunday, I said, if you put your hands on a woman, we're going to start a ministry with about six foot nine, 320 pounds, spirit-filled men who are going to come to your house and lay hands on you and not for prayer. Godly men protect, they don't exploit. And when you are thirsty, into verse 9, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner? But Boaz answered her, all that you've done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me, and how you left your father and mother in your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. And verse 14, at mealtime. Boaz said to her, come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers and he passed to her roasted grain and she ate until she was satisfied. She ate until she was satisfied. Again, wish I had more time to unpack this, but let me just chase this tangent. Another thing a godly man does, he provides. This doesn't mean that women couldn't or shouldn't work. Shoot, I live in the Bay Area where a fixer-upper is about $50 million, Okay. And so dual income is just the lay of the land. But what I am saying is godly men should at least be contributing to the tangible material provision of the household. I meet so many young men now who, you know, my career's not satisfying me, so let me just, let me just quit my job, don't have anything lined up, and let me just wait on Jesus and figure it out. Let me give you a word from the Lord. You've been called to work. You'll need to fast about that one. So let me just say to you what that woman in your life is trying to say, get a job. And if you'd love to dialogue with me about that, I'd love to your email. Just email me at pastorjd at thesummitchurch.com. So 
She sat beside the reapers and passed to her roasted grain, and she ate until she was satisfied, and she had some left over. Verse 15, when she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men, saying, let her glean even among the sheaves, and don't reproach her, and also pull out some of the bundles for her, and leave it for her to glean, and do not rebuke her. So she gleaned in the field until evening, then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley, that's 29 pounds, and she took it up and went into the city. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied, and her mother-in-law said to her, girl, where you been? <laughs> Bless me the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, the man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, may he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, the man is a close relative of ours. I mean, can't you just see the surprise in her eyes? One of our redeemers. Here it is again, and Ruth the Moabite said, besides, he said to me, you shall keep close by my young men until they have finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, it is good, my daughter, that you go out with his young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. So she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvest, and she lived with her mother-in-law. Father, would you just give us ears to hear what your spirit is saying? I just pray, Lord God, across all of our campuses that the seed of your word would fall on good ground, that it would take root, that it would produce fruit. Use me, I pray, Lord God. Edit out anything that attracts undue attention to myself. Edit in everything that brings you maximum glory and your people great good. Save souls today, Lord Jesus. Encourage hearts. In Christ's name, amen. I love the Karate Kid. Not 2010 Karate Kid. I'm talking the real Karate Kid, like Ralph Macchio, who um, I just got a dispute with JD. He's such a better actor than Nicolas Cage. Here he is, man. This guy still looks like he's 17 years of age, but I just remember being in the 80s, going to see the Karate Kid, man, and uh, you know Daniel, uh, played by Ralph, is, uh, is the protagonist of the story, and here's Daniel. He's being bullied, and, uh, and these guys just are just wreaking havoc on him, and him and Mr. Miyagi cut a deal that these guys will leave him alone until the karate tournament comes up, but there's a problem. Daniel doesn't know karate. Uh, many of us know the storyline, so Mr. Miyagi says, don't worry about it. I'll teach you karate. They set an appointment. Daniel shows shows up so excited to learn karate and he shows up man just I'm gonna learn this these profound lessons about karate and what does Mr. Miyagi tell him paint the fence and not only does he paint the fence he's got to paint it in a specific way right his wrist got to go a certain way and so he does it thinks he's done and Mr. Miyagi says ah, you got to paint the other side of it too and so you can just kind of see the excitement just leaking out of Daniel him thinking I thought I came here to learn karate I didn't think I came here to paint the fence but that's okay he gets finished painting the fence they make an appointment for him to come back he's thinking next time I'm going to finally learn karate but then he comes back and what happens come on go with me somebody in their 40s you know what happens. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Wax the car and he's got to wax it a certain way. And he's like, what in the world? I thought I was going to learn karate, but here I am being your errand boy. I'm waxing your cars. No problem. He does it. Uh, you can just see again, the excitement just leaking out of his face, but they set the appointment. He's going to come back another day. Finally, this time he thinks I'm going to learn karate. He shows up and what does Mr. Miyagi tell him? Come on now, sand the floor. 
and sand it in a certain way. Man, he is ticked off, but he gets even more angry when Mr. Miyagi shows up moments later with a fishing pole. He's been out fishing while Daniel's been sanding his floor. And in a poignant scene, they get face to face and Daniel just lets them have it. He says, look, man, I came here with an agenda. Here's how I'm expecting you to move in my life. I expected you to be teaching me karate, not making me your servant. You've got me doing this random stuff, and and here it is. The scene gets really more poignant because Mr. Miyagi helps him to connect the dots. He says, show me paint the fence, and show me wax the cards, and show me sand the floor. And what he realizes at this moment, it's a light bulb moment that these events of painting the fence and waxing the cards and sanding the floors, they weren't accidents. They weren't coincidence. They were providence. That all along, Mr. Miyagi had been working in his life, even though it didn't look like it. It was the the Danish theologian, Soren Kierkegaard, who said, I love this, fundamentally the problem with life is that while we have to live it forward, it is best understood backwards. Soren Kierkegaard says the fundamental problem with life is that while we have to live it forward, it is best understood backwards. And because of this, I don't care how spiritual you are, there are going to come moments in your life when God is going to feel like a divine Mr. Miyagi, where he won't make sense. Where you're just thinking, God, I I had some expectations and I thought they were reasonable and I thought you'd be working in this way and I had this script kind of figured out and it seemed to be congruent with scripture and here I am years later, decades later, and you just make no sense at all. I don't get you, God. I wish someone was honest enough to admit that. Maybe there's someone here today and when you said I do, you just... You just figured I can get pregnant on my own timetable. After all, the Bible says children are a heritage from the Lord. Psalm 127 says they're like arrows, not boomerangs, but like arrows. And blessed is a person whose quiver is filled with him. And, and here you are, years later, into your marriage, dealing with a barren womb. And you're going, God, what's up? Others of you, you... You had some expectations for your career and some things you wanted to do, and and some of that was very connected to the kingdom of God, and yet you've been laid off. Others of you, you're dealing with health crisis, and you're crying out to God and asking God to move in a very certain way. Others of you have had tragic events happen to you. In a crowd this size, some of you may be sexually abused or assaulted. God, where are you? There's one phrase that sums up Ruth chapter 2, and I want you to write it either in your notes app or in the margin of your Bible. It's a phrase that canvases all of this chapter of her life, all of her life, in all of our lives, it's the providence of God. What do we mean when we talk about the providence of God? 
Wayne Gruden says it this way in his systematic theology. He says, God's providence has to do with his ongoing relationship to his creation. Writing in the 1600s, the Puritan John Flavel says this of the providence of God. Listen, not only great and more important, but the most minute and ordinary affairs of our lives are transacted and managed by the providence of God. It touches not just some things, not just most most things. It touches all things that touch us. Or the more nearly... or remotely, or hear what Tony Evans, that great Dallas preacher, has to say about the providence of God. Tony Evans says the providence of God is the hand of God in the glove of time. (laughs) The providence of God is the hand of God in the glove of time. Ruth 2 is the preeminent New Testament picture, but, but the bumper sticker for Ruth 2 is really Romans 8, 28, that all things, all things, all things work together for good to those that love God and are called according to his purpose. All things, not just great things, that things that I like, but tragic things, things that I don't even like. There's stuff as a black man I don't want to put under the providence of God, but I have to. As I said, I was at the Cove with my father, and every time I'm in Asheville, I think of my great-great-grandfather, Peter, who was a slave. In fact, we've tracked down the family that owned us, and we were so excited. We said, man, we'd love to take you out to lunch. Y'all used to own us. You're like, whoa, whoa. Some of y'all are wondering if you can laugh at that. I'll let that awkward moment just hang. But this family that owned us led my great-great-grandfather, Peter, to faith in Jesus Christ. It is an explicit irony. But in each generation since my great-great-grandfather and my direct line, all of the men have come to faith in Jesus Christ. Does that excuse it? No. Did God use it? Yes. Nothing happens in our lives by accident or coincidence. It is all under the providence of God. So here's Ruth, immigrant girl from Moab who in chapter one goes through the epitome of pain. She loses her husband. She's a widow. She's childless. She endures a famine. She uproots and leaves her community. She now migrates to, uh, to Bethlehem. She gets there, and at the brink of starvation, she just so happens to one day say, I need to go to work, and she just so happens to go to a certain field. Oh, and that field just so happens to be owned by a man named Boaz, and, and Boaz just so happens to show her kindness 
kindness and he just so happens to protect her and just so happens to provide for her. Oh, and he just so happens to be related to her and he'll just so happen to redeem her. Oh, and she'll just so happen to end up in the lineage of Jesus. And if you think that just so happened, what does Ruth teach us? Nothing just so happens in our lives. We are living every moment under the providence of God. Now, wait a minute, Pastor. This sounds a little prosperity theology-ish. Because some of us have so overreacted to this whole idea of prosperity theology. You know that, the, that, that God kind of orbits around me and I'm the punchline of everything and God's my administrative assistant to help me pull off my best life now. We repudiate that thinking. But some conservative evangelicals have so overreacted to that. They, they swung the pendulum way in the other direction and they forget, yes, God cares about you. God cares about you. He's got a plan for your life. No, you're not the punchline of his will, but that doesn't diminish the fact there's a call on your life. There's a destiny for your life. There's an assignment on your life. And his providence is at work. How do I know God's at work in my life in our last 17 minutes and 28, 27, 26 seconds that we have? How do I know? How do I know God's at work? Ruth chapter 2 shows us three divine instruments God uses of his providence to get us to where he has called us to be. Here's Ruth, immigrant girl, uprooted out of community. There's a call on her life. And what does she do? Ruth chapter 2, verse 1, it shows us, now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. Here we see that God uses Boaz and his kindness and his protection and his provision and his favor as a key component of his providence in the life of Ruth. Ruth does not ascend to the heights in which she does. She does not end up in the lineage of Jesus in Matthew chapter 1 without God using this person named Boaz. It is a very un-American but deeply biblical concept. In the kingdom of God, there is no such thing as a self-made person. God uses other people as instruments of his providence in our lives. This is the story of David, is it not? I mean, 1 Samuel chapter 16, here's David. He gets anointed king of Israel. 1 Samuel 17, he now takes on Goliath. 1 Samuel 18, the opening verses, what does God do? He sends him a Jonathan. The Bible says that the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, that they made a covenant, a binding agreement with one another, and God has a destiny for David's life, that he would be the next king. But whatever God creates and calls, Satan attacks, and we see it now in Saul. Saul now tries to kill David, and what do we see Jonathan doing? First Samuel chapter 20, he stands in the gap, literally puts his life on the line. Here's the truism, David it does not sit on the throne without people like Jonathan in his life. 
It's a truth. Think about my own life. I'm not where I'm at today without my parents, Crawford and Karen Loritz. I'm not where I'm at today without godly people that God has stationed in my life, like Dennis Rainey and Kenneth Ulmer and other mentors in my life. Listen, I know where I'm at. I pastor in Silicon Valley. We're five minutes from Stanford. Very accomplished people in my church, like this church. There's plenty of PhDs in my church. Over 90% of my church has graduate degrees. 30 to 40% have terminal degrees. And my feeling is there's plenty of that right here in this church and across our campuses as well. And you have to be careful because with very accomplished, degreed people, you can buy into this notion that I got to where I'm at by my hard work, by pulling myself up by my bootstraps, forgetting God gave you the boots. So look through the rearview mirror. For some of us, it was parents God used. Others of us, it was mentors. Others of us, it was that professor. Others of us, it was that employer that gave us that job we should never have gotten in the first place. You didn't make it where you are by yourself. God used other people. Now, watch this. I wish I had longer to chase this. Not only does God send a Boaz into our lives, but God also calls us to be a Boaz in someone else's life. Someone helped you. Who are you helping? How does God move in my life? What is an instrument of his providence? Other people. But, but there's something else. I love Ruth. First day on the job, she tells Naomi, I'm going to glean. What does that mean? In Deuteronomy, God said to the nation of Israel, this agrarian community, when you come to your fields, do not uh, reap to the edges of your fields, which is akin to telling these people, leave money on the table, makes no sense, leave margins there, which means by sight, you could always tell the difference between a Jewish field and a Gentile field. Gentiles did what made sense, reap to the edges, max it out. God says to his Jews, trust me, trust me. The New Testament equivalent is a tithe. My oldest son just got his first job. Uh, he's working full-time at Chick-fil-A, man, and, um, and I love it. He comes home with his first check. He says, dad, uh, he looked very perplexed. Dad, uh, what's up with this FICA person? <laughs> yes, son. Well, they don't even ask. They don't even ask. They just go ahead and get theirs. And then we start talking about tithing. And he didn't want to tithe. I says, well, you're living in my house. You're not bringing curses in my house. And I says, son, it's a very counterintuitive team, thing. But God actually says, if you'll just trust him with the tithe, he'll open up the windows of heaven, pour you out a blessing. You won't have room to receive. But he says, if you go the way of the world and don't, I'll actually put holes in your purses. This idea of leaving margins in the field. It's actually God's welfare strategy. He says, I want you to leave margins for the poor to come and glean. Boaz is following this. He's organizing his business, not around common sense, but around what the word of God teaches. Here's Ruth. She's poor. And notice God's welfare strategy is not a system of enablement, but empowerment. He says, if you want people to, who, who are poor to come and be blessed, give them the basic dignity of work. Don't just give it to them. 
Let them work. I can't resist this. These things don't come out of uh, uh, government. They come out of the word of God. If the people of God would just do what the word of God says, we don't have to wait on the White House. Again, if you have a problem with that, Pastor JD at summitchurch.com. <laughs> now her first day on the job, first day, first day. She's not even a citizen yet. What does she say? I don't just want to glean. I want to glean among the sheaves. In other words, I want the good stuff. You're supposed to have tenure before you ask for that. In fact, the New American Standard, listen to it. It says this of Ruth chapter 2, verse 7. It says, and she said, please let me glean and gather after the reapers among the sheaves. Thus she came and has remained from the morning until now. Who's talking? Her supervisor. Who's he talking to? Boss man Boaz. Watch it. Her request is so audacious. And Ruth, I love her. She's spicy. She got a little Latina up in her. She comes and she says, I'm not doing what everybody else is doing. I know it's my first day. Put me on the sheaves detail. Supervisor's like, I can't do that. I got to wait for the boss man to get permission. She says, I'll wait. Get your boy. And that one audible she calls, that one quick decision is how she meets Boaz, which would change her life. How does God move in my life? He moves through other people, but he also moves through my decisions. My mama, she's got this saying. She says, you know what? When we're young, we look like our children, excuse me, like our parents. But when we're old, we look like our decisions. Decisions are key. Now, some of you are freaking out right now because um, you are reformed in all caps, you, you, you fast in sackcloth and ashes trying to wait on a word from the Lord as to whether or not you should shop at Aldi or Whole Paycheck. I mean, Whole Foods. <laughs> God, speak to me. God, speak to me. God, speak to me. God, speak to me. Now, hear me. I'm not anti-reformed. I'm reform-ish, lowercase r. So I'm not attacking that. But, but, but some of us are so sophisticated in our theology that, that we've allowed our theology to strip us of common sense. Much of life is navigated in the gray. And because of that, you and I need wisdom. What is wisdom? It is skillful decision making. God has gifted us in his word a whole genre of scripture called wisdom literature. Proverbs and Ecclesiastes and other books, which means this, God says, I want it codified for all times, sound biblical principles that equip people to make decisions. See, some of y'all are waiting on God to move and God's waiting on you to move. Make decisions. I love what Dallas Willard says in his wonderful book, Hearing God. He gives the analogy of a five-year-old kid who, imagine it's my daughter, let's just say. She comes to me and she says, Dad, can I go in the backyard and play? And I said, yeah, yeah, sweetheart, absolutely. Go in the backyard and play. Five minutes later, she comes back in. She says, Dad, can I swing on the swing set in the backyard? I said, absolutely, go for it, sweetheart. Uh, five minutes later, she comes back. She says, Dad, can I play in the sandbox? I say, absolutely, sweetheart, go for it. Five minutes later, she comes back and says, Dad, can I play on the big rock in the backyard? I stop her. I say, sweetheart. 
backyard. My will is that you play within the fences of the backyard. Now, within those fences, make decisions. So how do I make decisions? I figure out the fences of God's word. So, for example, in 1999, when I fell in love with Corey, uh, the woman who is now my wife, and uh, I'm, I'm just trying to get a word from God, is she the one? I didn't find a scripture that says, thou shalt marry uh, Corey Benavides. Maybe it was in First Hesitations, chapter 3, not sure about that. Uh, there wasn't a, a, a word. I didn't get a word from God. So I had to go, what are the fences? Well, I think one fence is seeking wise counsel. I think another fence is, is she a Christian and does she love the Lord? Another fence for me is there attraction. Was she fine? <laughs> I don't wake up next to personality. <laughs> oh, come on, y'all. Some of y'all are so spiritual. Y'all just so. I just love the way he worships. Yeah, okay. He ain't doing that at 6 a.m. Figure out the fences. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 says it this way. Many of us know this. Trust to the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make your path straight. You know what he's saying? Invite God into the process. Seek him. Pray to him. And watch what he's saying. When you do that, he'll make straight your paths, which means this. You can't screw it up. Oh, y'all are looking at me strange. Some of us right now have a navigation system in our car. Aren't those things great? Like, what did we do before navigation systems? We punch in the destination we want to get to, and it starts talking to us. Turn left, turn right. We've all been through this. Sometimes we get distracted. We turn left. We should have turned right. But we don't freak out. Why? Because a little thing starts spinning on the navigation system. It simply says rerouting. We're not freaking out, though. Even though we may have made a wrong turn, we're still going to get to where we're going. It may take us a little bit longer. But as long as we're leaning into that system, you'll get there. If your heart is to really trust God, and not to do your own thing, I really want to trust, and I'm really seeking him, you cannot screw up God's will. How does God work in my life? Through other people, through decisions. Let's go home on this one. Commentators all point out that, that the narrator is trying to convey a message in how he describes Ruth. Notice the descriptor here is Ruth the Moabite. Ruth the Moabite. Ruth the Moabite. Over and over and over again. Some of us know this, but back in Genesis, in, in a very Jerry Springerish passage, Lot's two daughters get their father inebriated, have relations with them, they get impregnated, and, and one of the results, uh, one of the fruit of that incestuous relationship was Moab. Now, Moab, you need to know, simply means, who's my daddy? To be from Moab was considered to be from some backwoods, unsophisticated, uncouth country place. For me in the Bay Area, that's Fresno. 
This is not New York City. This is not, that's not, it is equivalent to just going, she's from the wrong side of the tracks. So what is the narrator trying to convey when he keeps saying, Ruth the Moabite, Ruth the Moabite, Ruth the Moabite, here it is. She doesn't deserve it. 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 She's received favor. I just got to tell you, when Gabriel shows up to Mary, what's the first things out of his mouth? Blessed are you most highly favored. She's from a little podunk town called Nazareth, of which it was asked, can anything good come from there? She's not knock down, drag out gorgeous. She's just an ordinary looking girl. And I can say that with confidence because Isaiah 53 says of her son, he had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Now let's just do the math. Don't need to spend a day in seminary to figure this out. Where did Jesus get his average looks from? It wasn't from the Holy Spirit. <laughs> Don't you see here, if we're casting a reality show called the Messiah's Mama, we ain't going to pick Mary. But that's exactly how God rolls. I delight in picking those who don't deserve it. And the truth of the matter is that's all of us. How does God move in my life? By his grace. I'm concerned for some of you because, again, very accomplished people. And the Bible says knowledge puffs up. And you may have a bumper sticker on your car that says Duke or UNC or whatever it may be. And bumper stickers are fine, but don't you dare think that the letters behind your name or the school you graduated from or what side of town you grew up on or how much money you have in your account, that means nothing in the economy of God. I love playing Monopoly, and I always love wearing my kids out in Monopoly. But at the end of Monopoly, I never take that money and go to Bank of America. Why? Because while Monopoly has value within the realm of Monopoly, it means nothing in the kingdom of this world. Your degrees, your money, what side of town you grew up on, your family legacy may carry a lot of weight in the kingdom of this world. But in the kingdom of God, you're a Moabite. I'm a Moabite. I don't deserve it. I don't deserve it. I don't deserve it. When I went to college, my, my father, of course, helped out and I remember graduating from college, standing on the lawn there and just going, I'm going off to grad school, mom and dad, as you know, I'm, I'm hoping the Bank of Karen and Crawford Loritz is open. And my dad goes, man, it's funny you should say that. College was me, you, and Jesus. Grad school is you and Jesus praying for you. <laughs> man, I was Poe. Couldn't afford the other O and the R. I was just Poe. 
And I ended up getting this scholarship to grad school. It's called the Scholarship for Under-Resourced and Represented Students. I hate admitting this to you. I hate admitting this to you. I got a scholarship not because of uh, my GPA. I got a scholarship really because I was black. Now, I wish I could tell you I, I killed it in college, man, got the, got the 4.0, that 4.0 then got me into grad school and, and, and the scholarship, and, and I maintained a 4.0 in grad school so I could ma- maintain my scholarship. Why? Because that's where the pride and the boasting is, merit-based scholarships. Man, that's... And if some of you right now are insulted that I would get a scholarship for something I had no control over then I have something even more insulting to tell you. In the kingdom of God, there are no merit-based scholarships. We get in by grace because we're Moabites. And what gets us in keeps us in. You didn't work your way in, and you can't work your way out. Kept by grace. It's the providence of God. So, Father God, we bless you in this place today. Spiritually speaking, we are all from the wrong side of the tracks. Headed for an eternity destined in hell. But, Lord God, you snatched us, as Jude says, out of the fire. By your grace, you have saved us. And while that is your greatest work in our life, you are still working in our lives today. That all things work together, those mountaintop, joyful, euphoric moments, and those moments in the valley, those moments where we feel crushed by life, you redeem it. So for those of us who are followers of you, Lord God, would you encourage us with this word today that you're up to something. You're you're up to something, not just in the big and the grand, but in the minute and the routine. You are at work. And then, Father God, I, I pray for those who are here across our campuses who don't know you. Lord, they are not here by accident or coincidence. It wasn't just them who decided to come to church. I believe that when Adam and Eve were looking around the garden for a fig leaf to hide under, you ordained that they would be here. They are here by your providence. And so, God, just as your grace reached down into a field and grabbed Ruth, the Moabite, would you grab someone today? Would you save them? It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.